0: Anyways, English 256, so, um, okay, chapter five of Thomas King's uh, book. We have one more chapter, it's actually not a chapter on Friday, it's kind of smaller and a little more personal um, on Friday, and so the folks that are in class on Friday, who might be listening to this, but all of you who are going to be reading it for Friday, just bear that in mind, it's like, it's a different type of chapter, and it might be interesting to think about how it's different and why. Like, insofar as we've been interested in, like, narrative strategies and rhetorical strategies that King uses over and over and over again, Friday's a little bit different, and it might be cool to think about why that is, right? Uh, Next week, we start in with some kind of, like, traditional stories, which are all gonna be posted to Blackboard, so there's no textbook for next week. Um, But maybe the place to start is, like, we don't have any slides today. I do have a kind of handout to give to you guys to go over some history portions of what we read. But um, maybe the place to start is, like, what questions that you have. So there's a couple of questions that came out of the post that are interesting to think about. But um, questions that you have, even, like, really small ones. Like, King spends a lot of time on history and what we read for today. And, like, I don't assume that any of you know this material. So if there's anything, like, factual or anything like that that comes out of the reading, maybe we can start there. Any thoughts on that? Like, for instance, a small one that Peyton brought up in your post but also like a bunch of people brought up in replies and uh, Nicole brought it up in response to Brianna who writes posts for this day even though she takes the class online. The, the question is like, so there's that Indian act that happens in the late 19th century, right? And what it does is uh, according to King, it provides a mechanism by which if you like obtain a college degree or if you become a lawyer or something you quote unquote no longer are Indian, right? And a bunch of people ask questions about that, like, how does that work? How is that possible? Can we talk about that a little bit? Like, why would it be that like obtaining a college degree would, according to King, make you no longer an Indian? Yeah.
1: Like, isn't that what we were talking about? I think last week when we were in class about how like it's the stereotype for like Native Americans and Indians that if like you don't fit into it, like people don't recognize you as one, yeah. and like. I assume it's because, like, I don't know anything about this, but, like, does Native American, like, like, settlements kind of get money from the government? Like, or, like, rest, like, do, like do they get, like, some kind of money from the government?
0: So, yeah. So,
1: I guess, like, if they're able to make money for themselves, they're not included in that.
0: Oh, okay, so a couple of points there. So the, the question of, like, do Native American communities get money from the federal government? Yeah, they do, through various programs and also also through, like, treaty relationships, right? So the intention, and this is a kind of a bigger question, but the intention of, like, taking people out of their native communities and making them no longer part of that community on the part of the federal government is, like, um, on one level, you no longer have to give them aid. You no longer have to fund them, Right. But then the first thing you said is exactly right. Like, If you have a college degree, if you become a lawyer or something, you're quote unquote no longer kind of like aligning yourself with the expectations of that stereotypical Indian. So that's one thing that King means. What else? Uh, Christian, you had a hand up, didn't you, or Andres?
1: Huh?
0: Did you have a hand, Dory? Uh, oh, no, 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 sorry. What else does he mean there? He means, yeah, you're no longer that stereotypical Indian, that expected Indian, right, if you have a college degree or something.
1: Well, actually, earlier yeah. in the book, um, he was talking about, like, the difference between, like, an Indian and a Native American, kind of. He was starting to kind of separate the two terms. Yeah. So maybe he thinks, he said you're not an Indian, you have a college degree, right? Yeah, you, according he, to the government, yeah. He, I think he's, in his mind, I think he's had so many people kind of, like, the two that he has it in his head now, too. And he kind of sees maybe Native Americans as more, I don't know. I can't really think of the word,
0: maybe. Um. Well, his distinction isn't between those two terms. His distinction is between the Indian as an expected stereotype and actually existing Indian people. Oh, right? okay. And so, like, uh, yeah, as Kat said earlier, like, if you have a college degree you no longer kind of comport with, you no longer align yourself with this expected notion of Indianness, you're more like what? Like, you're kind of more like a settler at that point, if you have a college degree right. or something okay. like that. But it's important to note in that moment that what King is saying about the Indian Act, and that's a kind of Canadian thing, but this is just the same in the United States context, is that what having a college degree or um, being in the military does is it allows Native people to vote. Bless you. It allows Native people to vote, right? It enfranchises them. That's what he says. That's the thing that this law does. It says that if you have a degree, if you serve in the military, you are allowed to vote, which means you become a citizen of the United States. What does that have to do with not being an Indian anymore? It's a weird question, right? And it speaks to the double bind of Native American existence. It's like Native Americanness is at once an identity that is principally cultural and ethnic but it's also an identity that's legal, right? What does it mean to no longer be an Indian if you are a citizen of the United States? Yeah.
1: Maybe since the United States are kind of a construct that the settlers came up with, that the Native Americans were part of their own thing before the settlers came here, so they kind of sold out, became part of this nation, that kind of ruined their history.
0: Right, and they, and, and it should be said, and it's often it's important to say that, like, when the federal government, like a settler government, like the United States, gives the power of the vote or citizenship to a Native person because they serve in the military, they do it just, they do it by force, essentially. They don't do it because the Native person asks them to do it. Yeah? Um, I
1: just have a question. Yeah. Like, can Native Americans be, like, drafted? Yeah. So they can, like,
0: So Native people in the United States are citizens of the United States. Like whether they want to be or not. In 1924, all Native Americans were made citizens of the United States by law. Like not because they wanted to be, but just because that's what happened, right? That's what the federal government did at that point, made them citizens. So yeah, they have all the rights and responsibilities of any United States citizen, but the interesting thing about Native identity is that at once you're a United States citizen, but you're also a citizen of another nation. Right, if you're an enrolled member in a tribal nation, you're at once a United States citizen and you're a citizen, let's say, of the Onondaga nation. And like, dual citizenship is not the craziest thing in the world. People are dual citizens of Mexico and the United States, France and the United States, whatever. But the interesting thing is that in the Native American context, you're not dual citizens of two sovereign nations like the United States and France. They're completely different powers. They don't exert law over each other, right? But in the Native American context, you're a citizen of the United States and you're a citizen of, let's say, the Onondaga Nation, but the United States exerts power and control via laws over the Onondaga Nation. So you're at once a citizen of the government that is exerting the power and you're a citizen of the government that's being oppressed by the power. That's a really strange position to be put in as a Native American person. Christian, do you have a hand? Oh, uh, no. Oh man, I'm just, am I seeing phantom <laughs> hands? You definitely had a hand up a second ago. Um,
1: you were just talking a, about um, how they're getting the citizenship, right? Yeah. Do you think that they wanted the citizenship or do you think they were just kind of given and expected to take in?
0: Some did and some did not, but it's often, I mean, even in the 21st century, let's say like the Onondaga Nation is not particularly inclined to think of themselves as United States citizens, Mm -hmm. right? They travel on their own passports and they want those passports to be recognized, right? Because what it means to like accept your United States citizenship is to suggest that like your native citizenship to your native nation is somehow subordinate, Right. right? So the intention here is like, okay, if a native person goes to college, if they go into the military, if they own land, whatever, that allows them to, to become a United States citizen. That's a, a really strange position to be in because what it shows us is that Native American identity is not simply purely cultural or ethnic, right? Native American identity is also legal. There's a f- legal framework for considering what Native American identity is in a United States context. That, is why Native American culture, Native American people, Native American society is so radically different from other, let's say, minority populations in the United States, okay, right? Black populations, Asian American populations, any other population, a minoritized population other than Native American, that difference is primarily a difference that is understood along the axes of race, Ethnicity, culture, genealogy, that's where the difference is clear, right? The difference is not between, let's say, a white American and a black American, at least in our kind of like abstracted, purified sense of the law, the difference is not a legal one. But right, of course like segregation happened and all of these things that were legally allowed that enforced differences between blacks and whites happened but in, in terms of like the equal protection clause of the constitution right whites and blacks are equal right there's no distinction between them in terms of the law okay white people and asian americans there's no distinction between them in terms of the law in fact you can bring a lawsuit against someone if it's you are seen to be enforcing a distinction based on race or ethnicity or any of these things, right? Whereas for Native Americans, the distinction is not just cultural ethnic, it's also a legal distinction, right? So Native American identity is really special and really distinct, okay? It's a legal identity as much as a cultural one. Yeah, Jonah. Um, So it talks
1: about status and non-status. Yeah, yeah. Does that affect the same
0: thing? This is precisely the issue that we're talking about. So this idea of status, is a Canadian term. But if you bring it into the United States context, it's the same exact thing. So there are native people who identify themselves as such who are not status because they are not enrolled in a tribal nation. Okay, so they are not citizens, legal, they don't have a legal identity as native, but they might have a cultural ethnic identity as native. Right? So if you're a status Indian, that means you have a legal identity as a native. That doesn't, by the way, necessarily mean that you have a cultural identity as native. Like there are quote unquote citizens of the Cherokee Nation who identify as essentially white, culturally, ethnically. right? But they are legal citizens of the Cherokee Nation. So that's a legal identity. If you're status, you have a legal identity. Just because your status doesn't mean you have a cultural identity as Native, and just because you have a cultural identity as Native doesn't mean you have a legal identity as Native. You can be a Native American person, but not a member of a tribal nation, right? For a variety of reasons. So, yeah, Johnna, that's exactly what we're talking about here. The idea of status is all wrapped up in this idea of legal identity as Native. Yeah, Christian.
1: So, um, speaking of status, like, um, when I was reading, I was looking at, like, all those bills that Canada had, yeah. and, like, how some of them kind of, like, clashed one another, and, like, they yeah. removed each other. Like, how come they, like, had all these bills? Do you know why? They just kept, like, changing it.
0: We did, too. The United States does, too. And actually, the handout that I'm going to give you is going to go through those. And King talks about them a little bit, but he's Canadian, so he goes into the Canadian context a little bit more. But what's the, the question is, why did they have them? or Yeah,
1: like, why did they just keep doing all those bills and everything like that.
0: Yeah, we're gonna get to that near the end of class. Basically, the question is like, why do the laws change so much with regard to the relationship between the federal government and native people? Why do they continue to change over the course of history? It's a really good question. Yeah, we're gonna come back to that, okay? Other thoughts or questions or or issues that you have? Because it's a really difficult, weird situation or context between legal identity as Native, and cultural identity as Native, and how those are not the same, and for every other kind of minority group in the United States, it's different, right? Any questions about that? Like if you're a black American, you don't have citizenship in another nation that has a subordinate status to the United States, you are American. But if you are Native American and your status you have citizenship in a nation that has a subordinate status to the United States. You have a legal identity that is separate and distinct from your Americanness. Very strange, very different. Okay? That's really, really important to know about Native American history and culture, is that that identity is very different than other minority identities in the United States. It's not one that's principally or predominantly cultural or ethnic. It's just as much legal. Again, you can be a cultural native and not a legal one. You can be a legal native and not a cultural one. Okay. Weird, right? Really weird, and it actually speaks to this history of legislation, right? And how it's all kind of frankly fucked up, and we'll talk about that. Right. I'm gonna ask, is that a hand? I'm gonna ask you, okay. No. I'm gonna have to get used to that, Christian. phantom um, hand. Okay, so this idea that native identity can be cultural, it can be legal, it can be both, right? That's really, really important um, to understand better what King is getting at. Another thing that got brought up in the post, um, who brought it up principally? Uh, <elig Leben> <Humble> Alexis, who takes a class online and post today also brought this up. The effect of beginning this chapter with the story of the coyote and the ducks. So, so many people on the, on the forum talked about why the coyote and duck story was important. Can we just kind of rehearse that a little bit? Why does he kind of begin with this story of the coyote and the ducks? What does it show us? What does it demonstrate?
1: Because it's about, like, how the coyote is, like, greedy and, like, the duck's feathers are, like, shiny and nice. So he, like, tricks them into giving, like, half their feathers. And then, like, it keeps happening over and over again and until he, like, gets bored and then leaves them alone for a little bit. But, like... It's said, like, in the story that, like, he'll come back
0: later on. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and like, the ducks know he'll come back later. Ask
0: more. So this is the kind of story that King begins with. It's a mythical story or a folk tale, right, that kind of frames the discussion he wants to have. Why does he start with that story about a greedy and rapacious coyote who continually keeps asking after the duck's feathers over and over and over again, under the guise, it's important to know. And I think Andres, you brought this up? Sorry, I've got a reference back to my notes always. Yeah, Andres brought this up, under the guise of protecting them. right? The coyote, it's really important to remember in this story that the coyote says, give me some of your feathers, ducks, so that I can protect you from other people. That's really important. So why start with that story? So that's a really good summary of what happens in the story, but why start with it? What does it allow King to do? So kind of So this story that begins the chapter, which is folkloristic, kind of mythical, it's about some kind of like imagined past in which animals can talk, all of these things. It doesn't just rest on its own, right? It's not just a story to be told by King in order to entertain, right? What becomes immediately apparent and what so many people mentioned on the forum, which is all to the good, right, is that this story is at once meant to entertain and to inform you and the nature of its educating you is through an analogy between the coyote and duck story and essentially something like the history of legislation between indigenous peoples and settler populations, right? What he's trying to get us around to is thinking about, and a couple of you mentioned this in the post, like it actually helped you think about the history by providing the story initially. right, That like a, I think Kat, you mentioned this, that like a really dry historical account can be pretty boring, right? You could kind of glaze over a dry historical account, but by King providing you with that story of the coyote and the duck, right, what it does is it kind of like brings you into the fold of the narrative, and it allows you to kind of analogize between the historical experiences and those mythical or folkloristic ones, right? Yeah
1: eventually with the non-status that there won't be any
0: luck for them to use the treaty that they made so there would be no Indians to use the land that they them. right the, the idea here through legislation and King says this at one point is to legislate native people out of existence Okay. so to legislate native people out of existence that doesn't mean to physically kill them right That kind of era of genocide is over right and has been for let's say 140 years or so in the context of the United States, right? So the era of physically killing native people in order to get them out of existence is over. What replaces that physical killing is something like a legislative killing. That's what King is suggesting. Legislating native people out of existence. So if you're, what does it mean to legislate native people out of existence? On one level, it means getting rid of their culture, right? Because native identity, there's a cultural and ethnic aspect. It means legislating them out of their culture, so banning certain cultural practices. But it also means what? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Is it like um, that quote that
0: that was like, kill the Indian, save the boy, or something like that? Kill the Indian, save the man. man. Yeah, this is a a really important point. Like, what you want to do is you want to take away. And the kill the Indian, save the man quote is a quote by this guy named General Henry Pratt, who begins the boarding school uh, movement for Native people in the United States. And we're actually going to get to that in a couple of weeks, the boarding school uh, era. But the idea of kill the Indian, save the man, is that you take away all the cultural, ethnic trappings of Indianness, but you keep the physical person, right? What does that physical person become if you take away all those cultural, ethnic, and legal trappings of Indianness? they become just like a settler, right? They become quote-unquote civilized, right? The idea is to make native people into civilized people. The way that you do that is you legislate their culture, their ethnicity, and their legal status as native people out of existence. And so what legislative history does, like what the coyote does to the duck, is that once it takes away land, right? So they don't have a base on which to live, but it also prohibits certain cultural practices, it makes it much harder for native people to like be citizens of their own tribal nations, right all under the guise, all with the intention of killing the Indian and saving the man, making these people into civilized, essentially white people. now, what does it mean to be civilized like what was important for people like Pratt or I think uh, King co- quote somebody else right there's a great quote that he uses of like we got to put we got to get the buckskin off of these men. We got to put them in trousers. The trousers got to have pockets, and we got to make them want to fill the pockets with what? Money. What does that mean? Like, what kind of person are are is the federal government trying to create? Yeah. They want
1: to make them capitalists.
0: Yeah, acquisitive capitalists who have a thorough sense of private property and ownership. Right? as opposed to communal, kinship-based people who live off of and in harmony with the land. Right? So what you're trying to do is get rid of all of those kind of cultural and ethnic trappings of Indianness and replace them with something like a capitalist impulse or a capitalist ethos. Right? Put the pants on, go to work every day, fill the pockets with money. Right? The idea is that Native people prior to all of this legislation is occurring... Uh, they don't have a drive to acquire. And that drive to acquire is actually like a principal, foundational identity characteristic of civilized society. The drive to acquire, the drive to make money, the drive to create, to produce for oneself, as opposed to like for one's community or society. So yeah, this idea, again, what legislative history does is it, It takes away the trappings of Indianness and leaves this kind of like acquisitive settler man um, who basically has no more Indian inside of him. No legal identity as such, no cultural identity as such. And so we get to those ideas, I guess to come back to the initial point, is we get to those ideas which are weighty and political and historical and have massive social implications. What King does is he gets us to those ideas through the coyote and duck story. Right? As opposed to just laying it out like a dry lecture, he tells us about the coyote and the duck in order to analogize those historical points to something that's a little more entertaining right but there's a flip edge to this too okay so that's one like rhetorical or narrative strategy that he's using that's really important is he's telling us a story in order to entertain us and then uh, kind of like subtly through the back door he's teaching us right that's cool that's a good strategy actually it works really well right like that's the nature of telling stories in general is like we tell a story, potentially it has a moral, but we don't hit the moral over the head of the reader, we just kind of like subtly filter it into the reader, that's the best way to approach these things. But that's not the only thing that happens here, right? What he's also trying to suggest is that by telling you this folklore or this myth, these folklores and these myths are not just cultural artifacts, right? They also have profound political implications, okay? This goes back to what we talked about like last Monday, if you listen to the recording. Um, It's really important to, we talked on that day about how it's really important to think about native cultural productions, not just as cultural, but also as political. Right, and so what King is trying to get us to see here is that this coyote and the duck story, yeah, it's entertaining, it's a cultural story, it's a myth, it's a piece of folklore, but it also has a significant political component. It isn't just this like thing that exists in, like the misty shrouds of the past. It isn't just like some fantastical thing where animals talk. It actually has real relevance for society, for politics, and for history, right? So what we need to understand is that both of these things work in tandem, right? The historical narrative works in tandem with the mythical one. And if you just had one without the other, it might be boring and dry. But if you had the myth without the history, what would it be? If you had the coyote and duck story, but then you didn't have the historical component. As a reader, what would the effect be? Yeah, interesting story and you kind of move on. You don't understand necessarily the implications of the story. What would it be more like? It certainly wouldn't be like um, necessarily a book that we read in a college classroom, right? It wouldn't be a book that's published by a university press. It would be more like what? If it was just the coyote and the duck story. It would be something that we would equate with children's literature, exactly, right? So if you just have the history without the myth, it's dry and it's boring. If you just have the myth without the history, it's children's lit, not to denigrate children's lit, but it's, it's for children, right? It's for children. Right? When you put those two together, King is trying to show us, we have both sides of that coin. That's where it's effective. right? That's where it's attractive to us as readers, as kind of adult readers interested in learning this material. So it's a what I'm trying to get you guys to think about is that rhetorical or that nat- narrative strategy that King is pointing to. Doing both is really important. And then, of course, there was somebody on the forum who also mentioned Anna. No, not Anna. Who mentioned the... New Zealand deer, anybody, somebody brought up the New Zealand deer, was that you? Yeah, that was an important point too, is that it's not just the mythical and the historical, he also brings in the personal as well. So in any case, any questions on that? I just wanted to go over this distinction between cultural identity and legal identity, and I wanted to talk through a little bit of like the effect of starting with the coyote and the duck story, what would happen if you got rid of the coyote and the duck story, what would happen if you got rid of the historical narrative, and why you need both. Any questions on either of those points? Okay, I want to dig a little bit into some of this legislative history, because I think it's kind of important, right? Okay, so I handed out a handout that I'm going to post online for folks that are not in class today. But basically, all it does is it provides you with, a, I think, a a useful chronology of major legislation uh, passed by the federal government to regulate Indian affairs. And I kind of want to go over this a little bit. I don't want to be a dry historical lecturer, but I do want to kind of go over this because it's another important concept that we get out of this book that really frames and structures our discussions moving forward when we stop reading King and we start to read some other stuff. So, on 130 of your book, I'll just read this off. King says, and legislation in relation to Native people had two basic goals one, to relieve us of our land, to take our land, and two, to legalize us out of existence. And we've talked about that already to get rid of uh, Native cultural identity and to get rid of native legal identity. So I kind of wrote down for you um, five different, let's say, legislative periods in American history as it concerns native people. And it's cool to map the stuff we read against these different periods and see like where we are in relation to when these authors are writing and how they're writing differently relative to the period that we're in. But I just want to go over them a little bit. So in 1830, Congress passes what's called the Indian Removal Act, which might be something that some of you know because it's the, the act that, legislate, um, that legally justifies the Trail of Tears, right? Which is, if you know anything about Native American history, you might know something about the Trail of Tears, right? So the, the Indian Removal Act is what allows the Trail of Tears to happen. So that act authorizes the United States to negotiate with native tribes for their removal, in this case, from the Southeast over to Indian Territory, which is in present day Oklahoma, west of the Mississippi. Right. The intention behind this act, when it's written, right, the intention behind it, the stated intention, which is very different than the unstated intention, but the stated intention of this act is that native people, they're being encroached upon by settler populations and so we want to insulate those native people. We want to get them away from settler encroachment. Why? Because we want to let native people continue to practice their traditional ways. That's the stated intention from the federal government. Okay? Natives and settlers are getting too close to one another in the southeast. Okay? So what we're gonna to do to protect, to go back to Andre's point at the forum, what we're gonna to do to protect native people is we are going to set aside lands west of the Mississippi River, and we are going to settle those native people on those lands in present-day Oklahoma so that they can, for many more years, practice their own traditional ways, okay? Without interference by settler populations, okay? So what happens is, under the guise of protection, we want to protect you. Under the guise of protection... Native peoples are taken off of their lands and removed to the west. Right? It's notable as we go through these to think about how all of these pieces of legislation are used, one of the justifications for them is protecting Native people, right? even though the effect of this legislation really doesn't protect Native people at all, right? The Trail of Tears was terrible for the Southeastern tribes, right? It didn't protect them at all. In fact, it decimated their populations. Right, but it's under the guise of protection. Really important point. So Indian removal becomes a kind of policy of the United States for much of the first half of the 19th century. You see not only tribes from the southeast being removed, but also tribes from the northeast and tribes from the Ohio River Valley, some tribes from the Great Lakes are removed, all to this kind of like nebulous Indian territory, which is you know, something like present day Oklahoma. So that's the first stage of like, US legislative history around Native American people. By 1887 and into the 1890s, um, Native American people are no longer kind of quote unquote physical threats to settlers, like Indian wars have ended, open warfare between Indians and settlers is gone. And so we see a new stage in the legislative history of Natives and Indians excuse me, natives and settlers. And in 1887, the the Congress passes the General Allotment Act, which breaks up the massive tribal land base in the center of this country. What the General Allotment Act does is it gives Congress the authority to divide up native land and to give it to individual native people. Now, because we're in 1887, who were the individual native people who got the land? male heads of households, right? Those are the people who owned the land in this time period. So we have this big undifferentiated mass of native land that it's owned communally by all of the native people in that tribal nation. What the government does during the General Allotment Act is say, this massive piece of land, we're gonna break that up. This massive piece of land that's owned by everyone, and so in some respects owned by no one, right? This massive piece of land, we're gonna break that up into 160 acre plots, we're gonna give that 160 acres to you, Native man. You now own it. You have deed and title over that land. That sounds like a good thing to our ears, doesn't it? Like, oh, I didn't own any land before, and now I own 160 acres, cool. Why would that be a problem for Native people? Because land. Right, there, yeah, right, you say, Sam, just to kind of reiterate, the idea is that Native people, generally speaking, share, quote unquote, the land, right? That, Native cultures, traditionally speaking, don't have a sense of private property ownership over the land, right? It's not that one person owns 160 acres, it's that the community owns, quote unquote, this land. And different people use it for different purposes, but this idea of private property is really not operative in many native societies, okay? And so what the General Allotment Act does is it replaces one way of using and living on the land with another way of using and living on the land, This new way of using and living on the land is a capitalist way, right? We own this land and we use it, right? And we make money off this land. The idea is that if you get 160 acres, that's enough land for you to build basically a self-sustaining farm, right? You can feed your family and sell the excess of what you grow to other people and you can make a good life with about 160 acres. That's the idea. The other thing that it does to native populations is it makes them sedentary, it makes them settle down. right? If you give a person 160 acres, they're gonna build a home on it, they're gonna raise their family there. right? So what it does is it um, replaces or prohibits or prevents native populations from moving seasonally between different locations in order to do their traditional practices and all of the other things that they would do according to their culture. What it does is it forces them to become sedentary. So it forces them to become sedentary, agriculturalists, farmers, capitalists, all of those things, which are pretty much opposite to traditional Native cultures. Now, the kind of really nefarious thing about the General Allotment Act is that it purports to give Native people, under the guise of their own protection, it purports to give Native people all of this land. But... They can't give away all of the land that's actually owned by native people. So there's a bunch of excess land. So they've given away 160 acre parcels to everybody they can give it away to, and it just so happens that there is a bunch more land available that nobody can claim, no native person can claim. So what happens to that land? It gets open up to white settler development. Right? So the effect of the General Allotment Act is, one, to give a bunch of Native men 160 acres of land, but the second effect of that is that tribal land in what is now the United States is reduced in area by two-thirds by the end of the General Allotment Act. Two-thirds of the tribal land base in the United States is taken away as a result of the General Allotment Act. It's given either to settlers, or it's owned privately by Native people. It's no longer tribal land. Two-thirds reduction, massive, huge, right? Huge reduction in tribal land mass. Okay, that's terrible, right? Like, generally speaking, historically speaking, the General Allotment Act was the worst piece of legislation for Native American peoples ever enacted in the United States. And like, by the 1930s, Even settlers knew it. They were like, ah, we can't keep doing this. This is terrible. This is really, really bad for Native people. And so in 1934, they passed the Indian Reorganization Act, which gives a bunch more rights to Native people. It allows Native nations to write their own constitutions. It ends allotment. It gives them the means to self-govern, right? It's basically from 1887 to 1934, we've swung entirely to the other end of the pendulum. If the General Allotment Act hurts native societies, takes away their land, and makes it harder for them to govern themselves, by 1934, the Indian Reorganization Act uh, stops the sale of native lands to non-natives and gives more power back to native people. So we see a complete swing in the pendulum between 1887 and 1934. Completely new way of doing things. So go back to Christian's point, right? Why do these things swing back and forth? In 1887, we have a policy that is terrible and disastrous for Native people. In 1934, we have a policy that's great for Native people, Right, generally speaking. Right? By 1953, though, the pendulum swings all the way back the other way, and we have what's called the Termination Act. So no longer does Congress want Native people to exert sovereignty or power over their own affairs. In fact, the Termination Act tries to get rid of Native American groups, period. Terminate relationships between Native groups and the United States, to literally terminate tribes. To just say, you're no longer recognized by the United States, you're no longer a tribe at all. And so between the General Allotment Act, the Indian Reorganization Act, and the Termination Act, we get this massive whiplash of policy over an 80-year period, right? And it actually doesn't end there. By the 1960s and into the 1970s, we're back to what's called the era of self-determination, where a bunch of uh, policies are enacted that give Native people more power over their own affairs. So in a 100-year period, and then I'll get to you, Christian, in a 100-year period, what we have is a massive pendulum shift twice over, historical whiplash between taking away the rights of Native people, giving Native people rights, taking away their rights, and giving them back again. Go
1: ahead. Uh, do you think, you know, since there was so much swaying back and forth, if it had, you know, something to do with which party was control of the majority of the government at the time?
0: It does, to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. So it's, it's not a... It, it,
1: like, if you look how these are spaced out, you can, like, definitely tell that there had to be, you know, multiple changes in the House yeah. of Congress and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Totally. Um, it's like just to take one example, like it's not a coincidence that the Indian Reorganization Act happens like in the height of the Progressive Era in the 1930s and like right. the, the wake like FDR and stuff like that. Like this is yeah, like national politics, settler national politics has a massive influence on Indian policy as well, for sure. It's not a surprise that in the 1960s, when the civil rights era comes into full fruition, right? we also have the pendulum swing back to giving native people more mm-hmm. rights and more power over their own affairs.
1: Okay, totally.
0: Yeah. So it's not a coincidence, yeah. But I guess the question is, like, what do you think the effect of that is on native people? right? If you could speculate, what do you think the effect is?
1: Confused. Confuses like, what their status is, what they can and cannot do, right. what they can govern and can't govern, right. what they're supposed to pay, what they're not supposed to pay. Yeah. If, you know, because it keeps changing, so how are they supposed to keep up with
0: that? Right. Profound confusion, like genera- generational confusion. What else? What do you think the effect is? Yeah. How do you like, trust in the, like, like, in the country, like, in people who are not native American, um, you
1: know, how do you trust someone when they give you your, your rights in the middle of
0: it? Yeah. Totally cool. Two things to say about that. Yes, in line with confusion, a lack of trust. But one thing, Sam, that you said that I really want to kind of focus on here is that what this history of legislative affairs shows us is that the federal government has the power to take away native rights at any time, right? So not only does that probably provoke confusion and distrust and disease, it also, like really hammers home the point that native people in this particular context are subordinate to the federal government. The whims, at the whims of the federal government, native rights can be taken away, right? So what, is it, what do you think it feels like to live under that kind of circumstance? I mean, profoundly traumatizing, I would assume, right? Like profound psychological trauma to know that at any moment like the, the, the federal government can take away your rights and then just like on a whim give them back to you. As the winds of broader political movements change, right? Yeah. So what it reveals is that the federal government has like unlimited power over Native affairs, right? Can take away or can give at kind of at the whim of the federal government.
1: I think it definitely swayed the major like their political views too. In what sense? Uh, they're going to look at who's in office when um, these acts. Are engaged, you know
0: what I mean? Yeah, although it's fascinating, like it's it's fascinating how like political views and their alignment to political parties, like historically, is so different than our contemporary moment because uh-huh. um, it's hard to imagine. But one of the best presidents in the twentieth century for Native American people was actually Richard Nixon. Really? Right, even though Native Americans now, in our contemporary moment, vote, like, predominantly Democratic and wouldn't necessarily align themselves with the broader policies of the Nixon administration, uh-huh. Nixon was actually tremendously helpful for Native American people. And so it's weird how those kind of, like, those things change and are, are, right. are different. But generally speaking, yeah, it probably does impact how Native people vote and how they think about their relationship to the federal government and, and stuff like that, Yeah. Any other questions about this? Super important historical lesson, but like I don't care whether you remember what the Indian Reorganization Act is, that's not the point. The point is that you remember, that you take away from what we talked about today, that the history of legislation enacted by the federal government for the purposes of ruling over native people is characterized by, principally, this massive swing pendulum shift between giving rights and taking them away over the course of about 150 years. We see giving rights, taking them away, giving rights and taking them away, right? Without really rhyme or reason, open to the winds of political change, right? That's an important thing to take away, to understand about like the history of Native American populations in the United States over the past, let's say, 120 to 200 years. Just profound whiplash. Any last thoughts, concerns, questions? Okay, for you guys, next week, I think we're reading an origin story or maybe some folk tales. So be on the lookout for that. It'll be posted on Blackboard soon. But be in touch if you need, okay? Good luck with your tests, Christian, and anyone else. <laughs>